Father God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that it's an important part of meeting together. That we can come and study it and hear you speaking to us. And so we do pray that after a busy day for, for many, you'd give us minds that are alert. That we would hear what is said. But we do pray you'd give us spirits that are in tune with your Holy Spirit. That we would hear what you were saying to us, and we would also apply it to our lives. We'd go away from here more confident in your word, more confident in the gospel, and more able in your strength to stand up and proclaim the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're wondering where the uh, the title of the sermon came from, um, it was the title of a song by a band called the Kaiser Chiefs um, a few years ago. The chorus went, um, watching the people get leery, it's not very pretty, I tell thee. Walking through town is quite scary. It's not very sensible either. I think it probably sounds better when it's sung than than read out. Um, Some thought it was about the 2011 riots, but uh, apparently it's based on a night out in Leeds. So um, apologies to any uh, northerners, Helen, who are here with us uh, this evening. But if you've ever been caught up in a crowd that is getting out of control. It can be quite scary, can't it? Back in the the 70s and 80s, going to watch a football match wasn't quite as civilized as it might be today. People got to carry along in the moment and did things they wouldn't normally do. In the 2011 riots, as you see from the the picture here on the screen, people who wouldn't normally dream of uh, stealing from a shop or attacking Police got caught up in the moment. We witnessed scenes like this. Well, in the passage that we're looking at this evening that we've heard read to us, things get a little bit out of control in Ephesus. But this passage is not just about mob rule. It's about how an idea or a belief can gain such momentum that it sweeps away anything in its path. And it becomes almost impossible to reason with or stand up to. And sadly, that is the situation we find ourselves in today if we are Christians here this evening. For example, you cannot even enter into a debate about whether or not Christianity is true because the defeat of belief is that all religions lead to God and truth, therefore, is is a subjective thing. No one can stake a claim to the the absolute truth. If you do that, you're just labelled as arrogant and dismissed. Well, the interesting thing about this passage is that after last week, when we focused on the power of the Spirit to, to make us bold for evangelism, the power of the Spirit to make people believe, to be baptised, to have their lives transformed, here there is no mention of the Spirit or any member of the Trinity for that matter. And yet we see God at work. Well, let's have a look at the story uh, before we try and take away some lessons from it. It takes place in Ephesus, which was a major political and commercial um, city located in present-day Turkey. It's uh, here on the map. This is uh, Paul's third missionary journey that he's uh, made and arrived here. Um, It was home to the goddess Artemis, or Diana, as she's sometimes known. And the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
Now we learned last week that Paul and his friends have been telling people about Jesus in the lecture hall of Tyrannus uh, every day for two years. We weren't sure of the the fruits of that effort, um, but we're told back in verse 10 of chapter 19 that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Well, now we start to hear about the results of that ministry. Have a look on verse 24. It's on the screen if you haven't got a Bible in front of you. They were told a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He he called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And this is what he says next. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So in Demetrius' view, Paul is leading large numbers of people astray. But of course, he's actually leading them not astray, he's leading them to the truth. The gospel is bearing fruit, as we would expect. Um, The church is growing. What Demetrius accuses Paul of in verse 26 is that he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Why should that bother Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen? Basically because it means they are losing business and they're losing money. And the first thing that Demetrius says to the workers is, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. Paul is a threat to their business. And this is what they're really concerned about, is they're concerned about their pockets. However, Demetrius is is quite uh, wise. He he knows that if he just focuses on their loss of income, he's not going to get much sympathy from others. And so he carries on in verse 27 along these lines. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. He's appealing to their patriotism. This foreigner has come in, and he's undermining their identity, their culture, their religion, all that they hold dear. And he gets the hoped-for response, doesn't he? Unrest has been brewing, and he gives the spark to set it alight. He gives the people the, an object for their frustration. He finds them a scapegoat, someone they can blame. And of course, they become furious. They begin shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And very quickly, the whole city is in an uproar. And a crowd sweeps down the street, picking up people as they go before they together rush into the great uh, theater. Have you never been to to Ephesus, I would recommend it, although try and avoid the, the heat of the summer. Here's a picture of the, the amphitheater as it is today. And even today in its ruined state, it is a pretty impressive structure. You can see the size, the scale of it by uh, the people there in the foreground. And as you look down from the, the amphitheater to, towards the main road leading to what have been the harbor, you see this street here. Again, imagine that street full of people rushing up into the theatre. It would have been quite uh, quite terrifying if you were at the wrong end 
of that crowd, a crowd baying for blood. Probably today's equivalent would be Wembley Stadium, a whole crowd coming out of Wembley Stadium, going down Wembley Way after England have lost on penalties to Germany. Um, Now, Paul wants to appear before the crowd. He wants to calm them down. But fortunately for him, he has some wise disciples and even some officials, we're told here, who who are presumably friends but not believers. Uh, They advise him not to. You can't reason with a crowd in that frame of mind. You're just going to get lynched. They just want to vent their anger. and They will take it out on whoever is in their way. And so we have this crazy scene of confusion in the theater with a lot of shouting going on. And that wonderful little line in the middle in verse 32, most of the people didn't even know why they were there. I love that, isn't it? It's a typical crowd, isn't it? Um, you get carried along, it's all very exciting, but actually when push comes to shove, you're not quite sure what it's all about. Well, the Jews uh, push their spokesman to the front who who wants to have a say. We're not quite sure why. Um, Maybe to distance themselves from these Christians. But they too are foreigners who who worship another god. So he too gets shouted down. And then fortunately we're told that the city clerk, maybe a sort of city mayor type of figure, somebody who carries authority, he manages to quieten the crowd. What does he say to them? Basically, says we don't need to defend our god Artemis. Um, she can defend herself. She's the great goddess. And as for these men who've been accused, they have neither robbed temples, they've not blasphemed against her. And if Demetrius, who has some sort of grievance, um, then he should follow the correct procedures and take it to court. If there's anything else you want to bring up, then follow the legal process. As it is, he says, your own behavior here um, hasn't been particularly impressive. You could actually be charged with rioting. And of that, the crowd quieten down and begin to disperse. Well, it's a great little story, isn't it? But I guess the question remains, what is this story doing in the Bible? It's not the first riot. There have been plenty of those in the book of Acts. But it's the most detailed description of one. So I focus on this one. What lessons can we take away from it as Christians? Well, I think the first one is that the gospel will cause offense. When Paul preached the gospel, he was met with opposition. Wherever it was, it caused a riot. It caused a riot in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Corinth. But why? What was it here in Ephesus that provoked A riot. Well, people don't like it when they feel the things that they value are under threat. Particularly by a group of so-called outsiders who, who, who are different. For what most people, for, for most people, what is important to them is their money. Hitler knew that. He used it to his advantage. So when he persecuted the Jews, he made Germans afraid of this, this group of outsiders with their different culture, their different beliefs, and their supposed financial domination. Now, Paul wasn't going around saying, boycott those silversmiths. Don't buy anything from them. They're, they're crooked. He was just going around telling people about Jesus. And as a result of that, the Holy Spirit was converting people. He was transforming lives. Before they were worshipping Artemis, 
They were also worshipping themselves and, and their love of, of money, their pleasure. But now they're worshipping Jesus. And if you worship Jesus, then there are certain things that you're no longer going to do. You're not going to worship Artemis anymore. You're not going to worship false idols. You're not going to worship money. Now, people are okay with you holding those views um, as long as it doesn't affect them. But of course, in some way or another, it will. In this case, it means that the new Christian converts are no longer buying their silver shrines. And the tradesmen are therefore losing money. I remember the, uh, the owner of the entertainer chain of, of toy shops uh, speaking at a, a men's breakfast a few years ago. And he explained how he, he got a lot of stick from shopping centers where he had um, an outlet um, because he wouldn't open on a Sunday. And it wasn't because they had a problem with his uh, uh, Christian belief. It was because it had a financial impact on them, they thought. People are happy if Christians do their thing as long as it doesn't affect them. People don't like it if their comfortable world is threatened. You may recall when we applied for planning permission for the building project, there was real fear from people living in the high street that their lives would be be somehow wrecked. So the high street would become a motorway, the church would be open 24-7, and they would have no peace and quiet. If you want to do a building project, go and do it somewhere else where it won't affect us. But I think the biggest offense that the gospel causes is that it tells people that the way in which they are leading their lives is wrong. And often it's not what, it, what is said. It's not that Christians go around condemning or judging those who are not believers. But when you interact regularly or, or work alongside somebody who's a Christian and see the different way in which they live, the different values that they hold, it can make people uncomfortable. It makes them aware of their, their own shortcomings. It makes them aware that there's something different, something missing in their own lives. And that is why people can quietly hate the most kind and gentle Christians you can think of. It's why atheists are so aggressive towards Christians. You know, you would have thought that if somebody didn't believe there is a God, then they wouldn't waste their time arguing about it. You know, why not just feel sorry for those who, who waste their time going to church and doing, doing good deeds, who are somehow misled? But I wonder whether it's because deep down they're worried that maybe Christians do know the truth. And the more they can disprove them, the more comfortable they can feel about their own way of living and they can just carry on. As Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by opposition. But also we shouldn't underestimate the, the influence we can have as Christians. You know, we read of declining church attendance uh, uh, and see laws being enacted which go against Christian values and we, we get despondent. But all the time, as Christians, we are shining light into a dark world and we will have a positive influence. It will provoke a response. Which brings us on to our next point, that God will still, still achieve his purposes. As I said before, the amazing thing about this passage is that even though there is a fierce spiritual battle going on, there is no mention of God anywhere. No Christian says a word in this episode, and yet God is very present. Through his people, 
He's ensuring that Paul doesn't go into the theatre. He doesn't put himself in an unnecessary danger. God doesn't need Paul to go into the theatre and speak to the crowd in order to bring peace. Because he's not limited to working through his people. He can even work through those who do not belong to him. He can work through the city clerk to bring peace and order again. It's God who puts governments in place, even if they're not Christian governments. He can keep order in the world. And that's why we should pray for those in authority. God is not worried about people like Demetrius. Yes, Demetrius may be used by, by Satan to undermine God's work, but what does he actually achieve here in this episode? He gathers a big crowd. They shout until they are hoarse. And then they go home and nurse their sore throats. For what? The Christians are set free. And they carry on with their mission to proclaim the gospel. And whatever the, the people of, of Ephesus want to shout about how great Artemis is, God is the one true God. He is the one who's great. His will will be done. Where is the great goddess Artemis today? Where are her followers today? Now, of course, there are places in the world today where Christians are not safe, where governments, out of fear of Christians, make laws to, to make evangelism and conversion to Christianity illegal. And as a result, churches are, are closed or burned down. Christians are imprisoned or even lose their lives. So this passage doesn't promise every Christian protection from harm. That's not really what it's here for. But the reason we have the gospel is because Jesus sacrificed his life for our sakes so that we have freedom from sin. We have hope for eternity. And he expects us to follow in his footsteps. God will achieve his purposes So when we face opposition, it doesn't mean that God is not there. It doesn't mean that he's not powerful. The worst the devil can do is take the life of a Christian. But even then, they still have an eternity with God to look forward to. He can't separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So what about your situation? Do you feel... Your witness is being held back by certain people, maybe in the workplace, by certain procedures or expectations. Are you afraid to to speak up for what is right in the workplace? We mustn't allow ourselves to be dictated to by the world. We mustn't cower away in fear. We do have a great God who is in control. And if the world is changing its values, which it will... We shouldn't allow that to make us change ours. We need to hold firm to the biblical values. We shouldn't go on the the back foot. We, We shouldn't start apologizing for what we believe, for what is in God's word, if that goes against what society believes. We cannot enjoy the freedom of the gospel and expect to to fit into society like everyone else. Because we're serving a different Lord. We kid ourselves if we think we can serve two masters. God is described in the Bible as the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So let's keep shining that light brightly.
But of course, these challenges are not easy for us to face. And one of the ways in which God gives us strength is through the encouragement of each other. So let's move briefly into chapter 20. And here we see that uh, it's important to let her to keep encouraging one another and to keep meeting together. Where we read that it's time for Paul to, to move on, but he doesn't just uh, ditch the disciples in Ephesus and say, you're on your own now, guys, I'm off. In verse 1, it says, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. How does he encourage them? Well, probably with the the sorts of things that we've been looking at so far, reminding them that the gospel will cause offense, but God will achieve his purposes. So stand firm despite persecution. And it's not just the believers in Ephesus who need encouragement, because we're told in verse 2 that Paul traveled throughout that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Now, standing firm doesn't mean being naive. Paul still needs to act wisely. He still needs to seek the help, the guidance of the Spirit. As Jesus said to his disciples, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And so Paul decides in verse 3, because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. It's interesting, although Paul's going around encouraging um, believers, he himself needs encouragement. He he hardly ever travels alone, and this time is no exception. Look at verse 4. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Paul too needs the encouragement of others. The great thing is that two of his companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, are the ones who are seized by the mob. And here they are, continuing with Paul to fearlessly proclaim the gospel in another place. Now, the fact that his traveling companions also are from a variety of places highlights this sense of of partnership that God loves to see in gospel ministry. These are all presumably people that um, uh, were converted through Paul's ministry and they're now serving alongside him. They get a great model for ministry, a great example of churches giving up their best men for wider mission work, sending them out to preach the gospel further afield. Well, we're told they they split up for a while, and then they all meet up again in Troas, where they stayed for seven days. Troas, um, on the map, is is up here. This is where they end up. And we're told in verse 7, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. One of the earliest references to Christians meeting together on a Sunday the first day of the week instead of the Saturday, the last day of the week. Breaking the bread is probably sharing in the Lord's Supper together to encourage one another. And as part of this worship service they they have in in this home, uh, we're told that Paul spoke to the people because he intended to leave the next day and he kept on talking until midnight. 
Now, it's difficult to know what we actually to take away from this little incident. Um, I'm not sure it's meant as a lesson for preachers to keep your sermon short, um, keep engaging, because otherwise your listeners may fall asleep and ending out and end up falling out of the window to their death. Um, although there is a good little book for, for preachers uh, with the title Saving Eutychus, um, which is quite helpful. But it does show that the ministry of the word is meant to encourage. It's meant to build up the church. It goes with the, the ministry of breaking bread. It's an important part of Christians meeting together. And it comes back to the point that living the life of a Christian then and now is hard. And we need the encouragement of meeting together under the word of God. Once we stop meeting together, whether it's on a Sunday or in a midweek home group or a prayer meeting, it's hard to be a Christian. And that's why we, we provide lots of opportunities in this church to meet with other Christians. They are for our benefit. So let's make use of them and enjoy them. Well, as we finish then, if we are feeling discouraged this evening by the opposition we face as a Christian, let's remember the example of our Lord Jesus. As we read in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus reigns. He will achieve his purposes. So let's encourage one another as we meet together and remind each other of that truth. Amen.